Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares starts his mega Christmas message. The understanding of the infinite God beyond time and space, a transcendent God, the God who's in charge of all things, and he now is born in Bethlehem as a baby. And if you think about it, that is the first thing Christmas is all about, and we ought to start to really articulate that and clearly understand that and be willing to speak about the depth, the mega message of that simple truth. decorations, the lights, and the pageantry of Christmas are great. But if we're not paying attention, we can miss the mega Christmas message. Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares reminds us of the grand nature of what we're celebrating, that God himself was manifested in the flesh as a baby born in Bethlehem. I'm Dave Drury. And now let's turn to 1 Timothy 3.16, where Pastor Mike is going to point us to the Greek word mega, to help us grasp the truly incredible significance of this Christmas season. And I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, for us to get today, uh, you know, kind of a, a briefing before we go out into the world on what Christmas is about. I want you to have a, a mega understanding of the mega message of what Christmas is all about mega Christmas message. It's not my message. It's the message of Christmas. And we want to talk about it from this particular text. First Timothy 3.16. What's the first word in that verse? Mega. That's the Greek word. Mega. Great. Right? Great. This is the, I just love the way it's put. Great indeed. Right? Great indeed. Big. Now big in terms of what? We're about to find out. Great indeed. We confess. Right? Is the mystery of godliness. Great indeed is the mystery of, and then here's this word, godliness. Godliness, this word sometimes is translated, particularly in extra-biblical literature, as religion. Sometimes it's translated as piety. It has to do with even the word religion. We often misunderstand it. The word religion, uh, has, it's not a bad word. I know it's a bad word today, you know, for cool memes and stuff about Christianity, about relationship, not religion. Religion just simply means that we are bound, we're binding ourselves to this, this doctrine, to this information. Paul said to the Romans, like this, this form of teaching to which we are committed, right? as Paul said to Timothy, in terms of this trust that's been deposited, you hang on to it, don't lose it. Nothing wrong with the concept of religion. We're hanging on to these truths. The church is the pillar and foundation, the buttress of the truth. And then we, as Christians, for us holding on to that, man, it's just, it's such a deep thing. Great is the mystery. By the word, mega has been transliterated into English as a prefix on a lot of words. The word mystery is really a transliterated word from the Greek New Testament. Mysterion is the word. Mysterion just transliterates. Mystery is the idea, not of something that we don't quite, uh, you know, understand or it's not comprehensible. It's not understandable. That's not the point. Uh, we talk about mystery religions, or if you know anything about church history and the problem of Gnosticism. There were people that thought about the truth of, of, of God and godly things like you can't understand them. Uh, they're, they're not known, or they're not able to be known. There's some things we can't understand, obviously, but Christianity is meant to be a comprehensible, logical, rational thing. Paul spoke that way. These are reasonable and rational things. They, they correspond, as Francis Schaeffer says, to reality. They are true truth. And so it's not meant to be like we can't understand it. 
But great indeed is the, is the mysterion, the, the, the profundity of truth, the depth of it, where if you just glance at it, you don't get it. You got to dig deeper. It's not that it's unknowable, but you got to work to know it. Then, look what comes next, six very short statements. And all these verbs carefully correspond in the syntax of this, of this passage. It clearly is a very unique set of short and pithy statements about our Christianity. And it starts with something where you might say, well, now I know why Pastor Mike chose this passage for a, for a Christmas sermon. I mean, just look at that first statement and let's look at it. What's the first statement he uses here? He was manifested in the flesh. Manifested in the flesh. Secondly, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, I said these are pithy statements and the syntax of all these verbs carefully correspond. And it was so interesting and unique to the, to the flow of Paul's statement here that most commentators say, well, this must be some pre-existing like hymn or some kind of, you know, catechism statement that would teach people what the Christian life was about, or maybe this was sung, or we don't know. I mean, a lot of theories on it. But the point is, it's stuck in here as a summary of kind of the depth, the mega nature of, of Christianity, which all starts with something. The reason I'm preaching it at Christmas is with the uh, with the fact that, that the one that it's all about was manifested in the flesh, that he was brought into this world. Okay, so Let's try and understand the six things, mega sermon, mega outline. <laughs> the point was a mega message about Christmas. We want to understand what this is all about. And if you want to clarify Christmas, which you should, you are called to be clear about these things in your thinking and in our communication. We ought to know to our world as we hold up the truth of Christianity that, yes, this is great, confessedly great. It's not simple. If you say Christmas is all about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, that's simple. We got to go deeper than that. We got to look at this and, and, and dig a few layers deep, okay? Well, it starts with this, which is much deeper than, than we might think, Jesus born in, in Bethlehem. What does that mean? This one is manifested in the flesh, in the flesh. Now, there's a great Christian word in our uh, theology. We talk about the incarnation, which we ought to inject into our discussions about Christmas. If you haven't already, we talk about the incarnation right, of Christ the incarnation, which is a good English word, and it does help us because you're used to it in Spanish. Like, you're going to have a little chili. It'd be good for you. I would recommend and vote for chili con carne, right? Carne. What does that mean, right? You know what it means. You don't want to say it. Meat, right? Meat. You bilingual scholars, right? Meat. It means, it means flesh, right? So, chili con carne, chili with meat, that, that's a good thing. That makes, uh, that makes, in my book, chili much better, right? Chili con carne. Let's have some meat on that chili. Well, when it comes to what this is all about, it doesn't make it better. Matter of fact, it's mind-blowingly demoting to think about God, because we're not just talking about a person just hanging out as a person in heaven like he shot down into, into, into Bethlehem. That's not how this works. We're talking about the triune God, right? the understanding of the infinite God beyond time and space, a transcendent God who was and is and is to come, the almighty God, the God of hosts, the God who's in charge of all things, right? And he now is born in Bethlehem as a baby, right? He was put inside the body of a girl from Nazareth. And, and, and God takes on humanity, takes on flesh in, 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 a, in, a, in a young girl's uh, womb. That's just like, that, that is a mind-boggling thing. 
And if you think about it, that is the first thing Christmas is all about. And we ought to start to really articulate that and clearly understand that and be willing to speak about the depth, the mega message of that simple truth. So let's put it that way. Number one, if you're taking notes, we need to be clear. Christmas is about the incarnate God, the incarnate God. Good word, incarnate. God, right? When you say becomes a man, be careful with that because he doesn't stop being God. That's the the mystery that the church has tried to make sure we don't ever mess up on the articulation of that Christological truth. He's not diminished in his deity. He still continues to be God. But as it says that this God, right, who who is formless, right, he dwells in unapproachable light, though he existed in the form of God, to quote Philippians chapter two, that infinitely uncontainable, as Isaiah 66 says, you cannot put God in a box, right? The heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain him. You want to think about God for a while. Let's think about that. Think about that image in Isaiah 6. He's seated on the throne and the train of his robe, it just fills everything, fills the temple. That God, right, though he exists in the form of God, Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be hung on to, right? That image of the God, the infinite transcendent, I don't have to grasp that. Right? But he emptied himself. In doctrine, you know, if you've been through this, right, we call this the kenosis, because that's the Greek word, empty, which we think, oh man, what does that mean? Right? It means certainly something humbling. Right? Deity concarne is, is, is a humbling thing. That's a terrible phrase, but it, it's a humbling thing. It's not, a, it's not good. It's like, hey, that made it better. It's like, you're kidding. How could that even happen? Right? He kenosis, he humbled, he emptied himself. Right? And, and being found in the appearance as a man, being found in the appearance as a man, God, man, that's, just, that's, that's absolute craziness. It's craziness. I mean, that's, just, that, that's it's incomprehensible to think that God, the infinite God, now is, is, is contained in, in, in a body. I was over to a friend's house on Friday night, went into the washroom, washing my hands there. And of course, this great you know, hostess and great house, they always decorate for Christmas. And here was this tiny little, very, very appropriate decoration next to the sink, right, in the guest bathroom of, of a nativity scene. It was probably, it was just like four inches. And it was the nativity. It was a little shelter there. And you had a tiny little Joseph and a tiny little Mary, and then like a microscopic Jesus in a tiny little, you know, manger. And I'm washing my hands. And it was pretty cool. It looked cool. It was all tiny and miniature. Jesus is like a one thirty seconds of an inch, right? He's just tiny. And I'm washing my hands and I'm looking at it and I'm, I'm thinking about it. I want to touch it. It looked like it was made of metal. It was painted. It was cool. Maybe it was paper. I didn't want to touch it and risk that it would melt. So I just I watched it and I thought, that is amazing, right? That, I mean, that is what we're talking about. That here is this, this, this tiny little package that God then puts himself inside of. Now, you're so inoculated to that concept, you're just fine with that. But it, you shouldn't be fine with that. This is a mega truth, a mega truth. This is a deep and profound truth. If I said God is here today, right, you might envision some, you know, invisible spirit in the room. I said, no, 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 he's here. He's in, the, uh, he's in the toddler room, right? He's two and a half years old. He's eating Cheerios right now, and, and, and he's cutting a couple molars, so he's slobbering on himself. He's down there over there, down the hall, second door on the left. God is there, right? Would you believe me? You would not believe me. I believe a demon is there, but you would not believe that God is there. <laughs> sorry, sorry. See, those filter, filter, Pastor Mike. You might believe supernatural things are out. You would not believe that God is in our nursery. You would not believe it. You would say, I don't believe that. 
God, the infinite God that I prayed to this morning, the God that I, I worship, the God that I think about is this transcendent God, this God that, that is 1 Timothy chapter 4 that, that dwells in unapproachable light. You know, that God, 2 Timothy 4, that, you would say that's impossible. He's not slobbering down in our, in our toddler room right now. There's no way. It is not possible. See, that is what we are proclaiming. We're proclaiming, as I look at that little tiny nativity scene, we are proclaiming that in that little baby in a, in, a, in a manger in Bethlehem so far away, so long ago, that God put on flesh. That, that's just mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. But it is precisely right, what is envisioned that Philippians 2 verse that I just quoted for you is, is the reflection of Daniel 7. I quoted that last week from this platform. That the Ancient of Days, the Father is there, and here comes the, the, the one who is like a son of man. And he's presented before the Ancient of Days. And given to him is all dominion and all honor and all authority and all power. And a kingdom is granted him and a kingdom that will never go away. One like a son of man. Jesus' favorite title for himself in the gospel is, I am the son of man. When he talks about himself in the third person, the son of man. And the point is, the God, the infinite God who has all authority in the, in the universe, and everyone is supposed to bow to him, every tongue confessed to him that Jesus Christ is Lord, right, is, is now in the appearance of a man. And he humbled himself to do that, to be found in the form of a bondservant, right, and to die an ignoble death on a cross of all things. That picture of an incarnate God. I mean, that's where it starts. And I just want us to give some thought when you say to someone, hey, Christmas is about the incarnate God. You just need to pause on that. Because most people don't believe it. I mean, they really don't believe it. Most religions don't believe it. It is the point of departure between Orthodox Christianity and the cults. It is the distinction between Christianity that teaches the truth on which the church is supposed to be upholding, the pillar and buttress of the truth, the thing that you bind yourself to and every other world religion. I mean, the Muslims. I was, talking, I was sharing the gospel with the guy talking about Islam, talking about the view of Christ. And we talk about Isa within the Quran. And of course, they do not believe he is God. No, that's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. And I'm saying, well, there's our problem. When you deny that he has come in the flesh. As 1 John says, you've just departed from, from anything that, that has any salvific power in your life. Christianity is affirming and has been for 2,000 years since the birth of Christ that God put on flesh, the incarnation of deity. And we need to stop at that and just let our minds grind on that a bit and go, wow, that's crazy. That is, it's deep. The mystery of godliness, of our religion is deep. And it starts with that. Well, I knew that. Okay. Next. Vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated by the Spirit. You should be clear that Christmas is about an incarnate God. Vindicated. You've got an ESV. Most of us are carrying ESVs here. Look at your footnote there in the margin. It's got a number next to the word vindicate. What's the marginal reading on that? Just shout it out. What is it? Boy, you shouters, man. At football games, you must be a lot just fun to sit next to with us shouting like that. That's crazy talk. What does it say? Well, you need your readers for it. What does it say? A little tiny? Justified. Justified. There you go. I, I know you're not going to shout. I had no expectation anyone was going to shout. But I appreciate you saying it so I could hear it. Justified. 
This is the classic word throughout the book of Romans that you'll see translated to be justified. And when I say, what does it mean to be justified? What would you think? Well, I think about my life as a sinner. If you're a Christian, you think I'm a sinner. But before God, I am justified by faith in Christ. I'm justified. And what you think of is that I as a sinner stand before the tribunal of God in heaven and I'm counted as righteous even though I'm not righteous. That I'm, as Paul put it in Galatians, I'm clothed in Christ, right? The righteousness of Christ that I'm made right so that God can look at me as Colossians 1 says, I, I'm, I'm fully qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. I, it's as though I am completely righteous even though I'm not. And you think of that word that way. And the reason the translators chose to translate this vindicate is because it doesn't make sense about Christ. Christ didn't, was not a sinner. Everything about Christ is clear. I mean, he said, if someone thinks I've sinned, cast the first stone, right? If anyone has something you want to say, just say it. I mean, the whole point is that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. So we're, no, we're not talking about that kind of justification. What kind of justification are we talking about? I like the word vindication, and it's a great translation. Just like English words, there's a breadth of usage. We've got to look at the usage of the word, and in this context, it must mean vindication. It's a good translation, and vindication is a great word. Like, if I haven't done something wrong, but people think I have done something wrong, and then it's clear that I haven't, now you're vindicated. You see that? The idea of me being guilty, I need to be vindicated, but I'm not vindicated because I've been good. I need to be justified. We use that word because we're thinking about sinners being counted as righteous. Vindication is I'm, I, I'm right and you thought I wasn't right and now I stand vindicated and I am right. So this is, this is the right idea. And Jesus, who is now God incarnate, the second person of the Godhead is now incarnate. It says he is vindicated by the third person of the Godhead, the Spirit. Vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated in what? Well, what did Jesus come saying? Crazy stuff. It's crazy stuff. Like if I've forgiven anybody, it's forgiven. That I can forgive sins against God. That if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That the Father and I are one. That you can worship me and it's not blasphemy. Because of course, Daniel 7, I'm the one who has all dominion, all authority, and you can, wor- you can fall down and call me God. And, and, and I'm like cool with that. Why? Because Jews, I mean, that's blasphemy for any Jew. Unless, of course, we're talking about God. He is God incarnate, the second person of the Godhead, and he's vindicated in that claim. I mean, think about how the gospels start. John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word, right? This expression of who God is, the second person of the Godhead, the agency of creation. And the word was with God, always had eternal fellowship, and the word was God. And the crazy thing of verse 14 is, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now that needs to be vindicated. That's a big claim. And if that claim is going to be made, you better, you better vindicate that. You better prove it. You better authenticate it. And Jesus' claim of divinity was vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated by the Spirit. Okay, how did that happen? Go with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. The problem with Christ coming from Nazareth in Bethlehem, you know, he's obviously... The, conceived, if you want to put it that way, in, in Nazareth. He born into the world, took his first breath in Bethlehem, grew up back in Galilee after some, you know, running around, as you know the story. And then he comes without home, as he says in, in Luke 9, he didn't have a place to lay his head, he didn't own any real estate, he doesn't have the degrees from the seminary. It's like, this guy, is, he's supposed to be something. He doesn't have much of a pedigree. He doesn't have much of a resume. As Isaiah 53 says, it's like one from whom men hide their face. It's like he's nothing special. You turn away from when you're walking down the street. He, he has nothing to attract. There's no appearance that we would think he's anything great. Here's another way to put it in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. 
Take a look at this text. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 speaks of the promise of what God said he would do. Second, Samuel chapter 7 regarding David, this great king, this eternal Messiah, this one who was going to have all power and all authority and the kingdom would be subject to him. Right? That's the promise of, of David or Jesse. That's Jesse is David's dad. It says here, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now that's a weird thought. What's a stump? Well, it's a big tree that's been cut down. Might be something you would picture in some seventh grader's photo project for class or something. Like, here's an old barn in the background and a tractor and weeds growing up. And here's a stump. And then out of that stump, here comes a little shoot. Now, that's an interesting photo. I can envision that. It's like a stump. This tree is dead. It looks dead. But it's not dead. There's life coming out. Here comes a little tiny shoot. Now, that's the picture. It looks like after the Babylonian captivity, we don't have a king sitting on the throne. I mean, we started with, with David and the promise and ended in Judah with Babylon gouging his eyes out, Zedekiah, and we have no more kings of Israel. We got governors, we got people in charge, we got officials, you got a high priest, but you don't have a king. It's like, oh, the, the lineage of David is gone. Oh, but here comes this shoot. It doesn't look like anything special. Next line. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Oh, this is the line of David. This is the promise of the Davidic covenant. This is what God said would happen. This is the fulfillment. This is the ramping up of the, of the perfection of what David seemed to be precluding. This, or not precluding, but, but prefiguring. And, and, and that's, I guess it's going to happen. It must be him. How do we know? Verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So the third person of the Godhead is somehow going to take the anointed Messiah and he's going to rest upon him, which by the way, it's not hard for us to envision this because you have envisioned it every time you read the gospels. When Jesus in his first act of his public ministry, he goes out to the Jordan River where John the Baptist is preaching and calling people to repent. He gets in line and he gets baptized. And when he gets baptized, what happens? Think about it, what happened, right? Hear the voice. Everybody hears a voice, like, who, who, what is that? This is my son, right? My beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What, what? Yeah, and then what happens? God does a miracle. It's the beginning of Christ's miracles, at least in the sense that this is happening to him. He's gonna perform one in Cana, but at his baptism, here comes this, this image of, a, of, of, of something that is, is depicting in people's minds, the spirit, and it settles on them like a dove landing on a branch. And here comes the Spirit of God resting on the sun. You're listening to Focal Point and the beginning of a mega Christmas message from Pastor Mike Fabares, reminding us of the profound mystery that God himself was manifested in the flesh as a baby born in Bethlehem. Now, you can listen to this program and other messages from Pastor Mike from anywhere in the world when you download the Focal Point app or listen online at focalpointradio.org. Did you know that Focal Point has faithfully broadcast the unwavering truth of Scripture, regardless of the shifting sands of culture or trendy church fads, for more than 25 years? We make this broadcast widely available on radio and online in order to equip you with the clear and accurate Bible teaching you need to stand firm in faith. And as this tumultuous year comes to a close, we're asking you to stand with us financially. 
As you can imagine, ministry costs, like everything else, continually rise. And as we wrap up this year, we need your generous support now more than ever. In order to end this December on a solid financial footing, we're asking our ministry partners to donate an additional $250,000 above and beyond our forecasted year-end goal. And with your help, we believe we can reach this bold goal one donation at a time. To give, call us at 888-320-5885 or donate online at focalpointradio.org. And while you're online, why not leave us a note sharing how this program has impacted your faith? We love hearing how God is moving through this ministry. When you get in touch for the first time, we'll send you a helpful pamphlet called From Creation to Bethlehem. This easy-to-read booklet shows the surprising connection between Christmas and the creation of the world. Ask for this month's free gift when you get in touch at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us tomorrow to hear more of the Mega Christmas Message with Pastor Mike. That's coming up Wednesday, right here on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. Ever wish you could corner your pastor and challenge him with your toughest questions about the Bible, about faith? Well, now you can. Send me your questions. Head on over to focalpointradio.org and click on Ask Pastor Mike. Or send me a note on facebook.com slash pastormike or twitter.com slash pastormike. I can't wait to hear from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.